All right, we're going to begin this week looking at John Brown of Lamprey's book, Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer. We're examining chapter 1, uh, which has to do with the text under review, which I have at the top of your paper, John 14, 13, and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified, and the Son you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> That's the anchor text for the book. And for the most part, Brown is going to stick to this. Uh, this is an important work on prayer by a Scottish theologian of, of, of high regard, high note, um, <clears throat> Samuel Rutherford, who's probably at the pinnacle of, of um, uh, ranking among Scottish theologians, said of John Brown of Wamfrey that he was the most spiritual man he ever knew. And that's from coming from someone whose letters are, to this day, in evangelical circles, his letters, I think, are in the top ten uh, books. Rutherford's letters have made it in the top ten devotional writings uh, among Protestants in particular. So Rutherford knew him. He corresponded with him. <clears throat> and his assessment was that he was uh, not not only a first-rate theologian, but that practically speaking, he was one of the one of the people that he knew most graced with the gift for praying and, and most spiritual in general conversation. Mm -hmm. So was it this John Brown, or was it John Brown of Haddington that was a seceder? John Brown of Haddington is a seceder. He's He's uh, about a hundred years later. Okay. <clears throat> so this John Brown, and really that's the that's the reason why we uh, refer to John Browns in Scotland as John Brown of Wamfrey, John Brown of Haddington, John Brown of Edinburgh, uh, John Brown of Whitburn. There are a lot of John Browns. It was a very common name, and so generally, if they become notable, uh, they get called John Brown, and we have to, to mention where they were from originally. Um, I say originally because John Brown of Wamfrey actually ends up spending most of the latter part of his career exiled in Holland. <clears throat> in 1660, he wrote a book. Uh, it was an apologetic for the Covenanters. It was a defense of the Solomon Covenant. It was at the time, and you have to remember, 1660 is the year of the restoration of the House of Stuart. So the Cromwellian era has come to an end. Um, <clears throat> Charles II <clears throat> is now being restored. And with the restoration, there were certain tolerations granted to non-Anglicans, but a lot of those things did not extend to Presbyterians because the Presbyterians were much more hard-lined and rigid as opposed to some of these other groups. Uh, they, 
they tended to be. Although over time, Charles and then his brother James II will begin to peel them off by offering them uh, carrots after hitting them with big sticks for a while. <clears throat> but the time of the Restoration, just prior to what is what is called the Glorious Revolution, 1689-90, uh, that era when William and Mary come to the throne, William of Orange and his wife are brought in to, to they want to oust the House of Stuart, the whole nation casts them off. Largely as a result of what the Covenanters have done, that occurs. Because the Covenanters never, ever compromise. The hardline Covenanters never compromise, and it causes so much trouble that they actually manage to get the whole nation willing to shake off the Stuarts to get rid of them. The last 20 years leading up to the Glorious Revolution are known as the Killing Times. During this time, Charles and then his brother James sent armed soldiers, they, they raised tax money, and they sent armed soldiers into the fields to kill Presbyterians who wouldn't conform. So they would hunt them down like animals, and th this is where we, we got into a lot of this with a hind let loose, a lot of the things they were doing in defense of what they were doing. But Brown was one of the theologians in exile to the Presbyterian group at that time. <clears throat> Brown was uh, sitting in Holland at that point. He'd been exiled, not ever allowed to come back. And he was writing these very elaborate treatises defending what they were doing and, and defending points of theology um, <clears throat> that were under attack from different angles. In fact, shortly after his death, uh, in uh, 1679, uh, 1695, Melchior Leidecker, I believe it was, uh, an, a Reformed divine in Holland, published Brown's work on justification, which was, in fact, uh, at the time, the most elaborate defense of the doctrine of justification by an English-speaking writer. And that's, that's certainly a book worth reading and, and meditating upon. Um, sometime after that, <clears throat> in the early 1700s, this book, which had existed only in manuscript, uh, is published, his book on prayer. Uh, these, these chapters are quite probably the result of a series of sermons or lectures that he did. And <clears throat> they... They reflect uh, the fact that he had time to think about it and probably edit a little bit of what he was going to do, prepare it for publication. But there is, with Brown, a clarity that maybe um, uh, you wish that Samuel Rutherford had. Uh, when he gets into the weeds, the theological weeds, you might feel like, I wish Rutherford would, you know, somebody would translate Rutherford into English, uh, even though he's speaking English. Brown's prose is, generally speaking, I'm not going to say all the time, but Brown is writing in an easier English, and it may well be <clears throat> somewhat related to the fact that he's in Holland, and these Dutch Reformed guys love him. 
They love him. They they trans they ends up translating a lot of his work into Dutch. Uh, in fact, this book uh, was out of print since 1745 until a couple of years ago, and now Reformation Heritage Books has put it back into print. Or I guess actually, Soli Deo Gloria has it in print as Godly Prayers and its Answers. But it's it's that book. <clears throat> so if you don't have a copy, I would recommend you get a copy of it. If you haven't read it, even though I'm going through it, I certainly would recommend reading it. It's worth reading. It's worth meditating on. I'm not going to hit every single point in the book. Um, I'm going to hit points, and I'm going to comment on them as we go. So you have, uh, you have some uh, sheets of paper before you that you can look at, and you can see it's sort of a map to where we're going. And you can fill it in or at least follow along as you see fit. So, <clears throat> with that out of the way, let's look at, uh, begin, look, to begin to look at chapter 1. Again, John 14, 13, and 14. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son... If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, question one. <coughs> How is the Lord Jesus one with the Father? <clears throat> this is A, or the first answer, the first line. Brown points out immediately that the, that the Son is the Lord Jesus is one with the Father in essence and that has bearing upon the work of salvation, B. Uh, because in operations, you know, he's in essence in operations and so B, the second point is it means that in the whole work of salvation, there is going to be displayed a wonderful harmony that will exhibit the agreement and unanimity between the Father and the Son. <clears throat> so, being one God, <coughs> one essence, <clears throat> one substance of divinity and we're going to we're going to come back to this um, in, in a subsequent question to examine some aspects of that a little bit more but what what that means but that singularity of essential being whereby as the um, the Nicene Creed for example says, that the 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 son is homoousian with the father. He's the same substance with the father. That being, that unity of being, <clears throat> guarantees a unity of purpose. And the reason this is important is because Luther. Uh, Luther is 
one of the things Luther's reacting to at the Reformation is the medieval idea of the hidden God and the revealed God. Uh, the, the idea that God in, is, in some sense, uh, there is this hidden uh, God because God is so other from the creation. Transcendental is one of the words that they would use. <clears throat> he is so removed from, apart from the creation that as to his essential being, he's unknowable. They, use, they threw around Latin terms to describe that unknowableness of God. And the Jews to this day still stumble quite a bit over this point. <clears throat> now, Christianity tells us that the second power in heaven that Jewish theologians did talk about, that there is a second power in heaven. Rabbinic authorities used to talk about this. You'll see hints of this in the Targums. You'll see hints of this in uh, Philo. <clears throat> that second power, Christian theology says, is the Son. And the Son is the revelation of the unknowable God. Right. So the Father is God in a person unknowable. But the Son reveals the Father... And he reveals the Father and reveals him to us. But because of this one substance, what we know is this. The God that's revealed, the Son, is not at cross purposes with the Father. So when we see the Son act, when we see Jesus say something, we know that what he's saying is accurately representing the Father. Jesus says he came to reveal the Father. And one of the biggest misconceptions I think that people have is that the New Testament is the revelation of Jesus. I, I think the Old Testament is the revelation of, of Jesus. It's the revelation of the Messiah who's going to come. There's all kinds of typology there. The New Testament is actually the revelation of the Father. <clears throat> in Christ, right? In Christ. We can only really know the unknowable God in Him. And we can only know the unknowable God in Christ because of the incarnation. Well, that's, that's a different... And we're going to get into that here as well. Hmm. Right? That's going to come up as well. Because the way He's made Him known is by assuming our nature. Right? Because the, 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 the gap between the Creator... And the creature is infinite. It's unbridgeable from our perspective. This is why, you know, when people sit around and say, I'm spiritual, I'm this, I'm that. You can't think your way back to God from where we are. It requires a revelation from where God is coming into and illuminating us where we are. 
and the creation does that, it functions in that way, but when man falls into sin, he is no longer able to read the creation and the revelation of creation, and he has this added problem of the guilt of sin now. And that's why the Bible becomes a necessary thing. So, the third part of question one, what confirmation of his divinity and being about God's work is promised to the disciples? For their encouragement, confirmation of his divinity, encouragement, uh, he, he tells them that that um, they and others who believe on him would be endued with power to do great works and miracles like he himself did. <clears throat> so he promises them uh, basically a taste of the divinity, right? A, par- a participation in the divine nature um, in in these miracles, and this is this is actually one of the um, important reasons for apostolical miracles <clears throat> is that they're demonstrations as the as the New Testament is being written, as the New Testament uh, interpretations of the Old Testament are are being. Um, uh, finalized and and really um, uh, put in into a more permanent form for subsequent generations. That process is become is, is surrounded with a lot of mir- the miraculous. So we see <clears throat> the peri- periods of miracles in in biblical history. Generally speaking surround periods of revelation of the Bible. So Moses is doing a lot of miracles and he's writing the first five books. And Elisha and Elijah, the the prophets, they're overseeing in many regards the the canonization of what the Jews would call the early prophets. We would call them the historical books of the Old Testament. And we see that going on, uh, and then all of a sudden, it starts up again at the time of the New Testament with the apostles. So these are signs and seals, testimonies, that they are in fact inspired by God to be bringing this revelation. And um, and that's the reason why we don't really... Uh, expect to see that kind of miraculous activity. Not that God doesn't work miraculously or, or that there aren't miracles, but we don't expect to see that sort of thing. So that this idea that the Pentecostals have and the charismatic movement has, uh, that this should be the ordinary course, is very much misguided uh, because m- m- the miraculous is intimately tied to the process of revealing what is then inscripturated and canonized as our Bible. And when we come to the end of that process with the Apostle John, there's no longer going to be that need, and there is no longer that need. 
It's not to say that there are no more miracles. It's simply to say that this close attachment Jesus is talking about to the apostles where somebody has this gift or that gift in particular is gone. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal in answer to prayer. doesn't mean that he doesn't do other things in answer to prayer. It does mean when you see these guys on television claiming to have uh, great powers to heal or do these other things, they're lying. Yeah. Do you think there will be miracles uh, with the coming of the millennium? <clears throat> The greater outpouring of the Spirit, you think you'll see some more supernatural things? There'll be miracles, but whether or not they'll be tied to others, uh, it doesn't seem to be necessary. I think you'll, there'll be greater displays of the power of the Spirit, but and as far the, as like the, the idea of tying stuff through, through, normal, through normal means of prayer, yeah, the, the, the the idea of tying it though to uh, these apostles who are in scripture reading yeah. is no longer necessary. All right, let's move on to um, <clears throat> question two. What's the first consideration offered upon the words of Christ in John 14? <clears throat> so what does, he, what does he want us to think here? All right, what does he want us to consider? Well, he says, first of all, we should consider these words in John 14, 13, and 14, as connected with and confirming that which he had last been speaking of concerning the power that such as should believe on him would be provided with to work miracles. Right? So what, what he is saying is, what he's indicating is, there's going to be this transference of um, the miraculous power. Right. The, the apostles come in, and what do they do? They are rocking the world of Jerusalem. They're, they're turning the place upside down, we're told. People are being healed. They're, you know, they're doing all kinds of things, miraculous things, and it's getting people's attention. But Jesus now is, is sort of indicating here that what the apostles are doing is going to be, in a sense, toned down. The way the miraculous will appear is going to be through prayer and its answer. It's really, I think, what he's trying to get at here. He's trying to convince you of the of the, of the reason to pray. Yeah. Is that what, what Paul means, I think, in like 1 Corinthians 13 or 14, when he's saying you know, prophecy will cease, those kind of things will cease. <clears throat> those, those were only yeah. for like that dispensation of the early church. Because they were tied to the apostles, and they're super. And they're so. Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, he, what he says is, he actually the uh, when he says tongues shall cease, hmm. there is that's in what's called the middle voice. They'll cease of themselves. There's something about tongues that would cause them to cease. Prophecy and revelation that too would cease, but that would have a, an external cause, if you will. And the cause of that appears to be, number one, the completion of the canon of the New Testament under the direction of the Apostle John. That's a different study altogether, but I believe John is the last Apostle uh, who is going over and, and giving shape, just like Ezra 
gave final shape to the Old Testament. John is going to give final shape to the New Testament. And the last thing he writes is the book of Revelation. That's the capstone of the New Testament. And the capstone of all revelation. Mm. So this idea, you know, that the Muslims have that the Quran is inspired and so on. John John says they can't have it both ways. Right? They <clears throat> they want to say that they believe the Old and New Testaments and that the Quran is a corrective and and uh, a further revelation in a sense from those two. You can't do that because John says at the end of Revelation, "This is it." Right? You can't add to or subtract to what I've what, what's been written here. He does that by apostolic authority. Right? Apostolical type miracles cease with that. Otherwise, you'd have people out there, you know, turning people into pillars of salt or whatever, and then you you would be required to at least consider what they're saying. Now, there's another part that people forget when they go to these big charismatic leaders, you know, and they hear this stuff. And that is, Moses at the beginning said, look, every subsequent revelation has to conform 100% to what's gone before. You can't undo previous revelation. You, know, you have to make sense of it. It has to be somehow uh, conformable to that or it's not legitimate. So, from that angle, that is gone now. We don't have to stop when, when somebody says something, you know, they, they uh, I don't know, do a leg lengthening or they claim to do some great miracle. We don't have to stop and say, well, should I consider that or not? Because we know that there are lying wonders and lying miracles. They may actually be doing something miraculous. But not by the Spirit of God. Exactly, and that's the point in Revelation. John says that during the New Testament era, the demons will be at work from time to time. Don't be deceived by it. <clears throat> What's the second? So, so really, yeah. we shouldn't be surprised then when you see people... Sometimes healed, or seemingly healed, doing miraculous things, but but when once again when when what, what they're professing does not conform to scripture, yeah, it, know, if, there's, there's a demon correct, it, doing look, something. The there. devil will tell you the, the the devil will give you whatever you want, let's say, okay, to lead you astray. He's the father of lies. Jesus says that very clearly. So, you know, is the devil going to appear in our society? Doing all these wonders and so on? Probably not. But you travel to a, a third world country and you'll see people that are openly and people around them will acknowledge they're demonic, they're, it's demonic possession. It's bizarre. They're not just crazy. Right? The New Testament is clear in, in distinguishing between people with, say, epilepsy or, or something like that and people who are demonic. The Bible doesn't think everybody who's sick is demonic. doesn't ever say that. But there are clearly people who are demonic. And if you travel and you get into some of these third world villages, you may well see some people who are under that influence. And the whole village is in fear. 
It's bizarre. If you've ever seen it, it's bizarre. You, you would think it's very bizarre. But <clears throat> remember, Satan has been up to his business for thousands of years. He knows what lies you're going to most likely be willing to receive. You know, in the West, historically, it has come through uh, channels of education. You know, false science, false philosophy, all of that stuff going on and on. Right? But in the East, very different. You know, they're, they're, their religions uh, very much will involve ecstatic behaviors and, and so on. And that happens in that way there as well. Now, as we, be, as we see our society moving into post-Christian, uh, a, a post-Christian state, as it were, and people are more open to spirituality apart from Christianity, demonism will become more openly prevalent. You will see more people who are actively demonized. And I think we're beginning to see it. There's, there's reason to think that it's coming back. You know, people behaving uh, in ways unimaginable. You know, look at the accounts of demoniacs where they're this time throwing themselves in the water, that time throwing themselves in the fire. You know, there, there's a level beyond uh, the hysterics of somebody who is um, just simply mentally ill. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to the second consideration. Second consideration is this. We have to consider the words in John 14 as related to what he was speaking of regarding his being one with the Father. He says that they're going to contribute to prove him to be God equal with the Father. So this equality appears, he gives four points in which he says, look, you can see the equality of the Son with the Father. And it appears in this way. First of all, <clears throat> we need to recall that in John 14, he's actually about to be taken from them, translated into glory. You know, remember, a lot of John's gospel is really that last week before his passion death and resurrection. But he says, even then and there, he would both hear and know all their supplications and requests. <clears throat> Secondly, he says, uh, or B, uh, or excuse me, word to C, um, he says that they wouldn't need to question or doubt of a good and speedy return because he was there.
They're not looking for something in in the future. They're dealing with him there. Uh, third, D, or D here, he himself having all power in heaven and earth granted to him as mediator that he with the Father could work out the answer to the prayers himself. Right? So if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And fourth or E here. All this must be so because it will be to the glory of the Father as concurring and consenting, working the same in and by Him. So there's... There, there he is. He's ever present with him at the point. At this point, he's present with him. They're not waiting for him to come back. Uh, he, he has. Um, <clears throat> he has the authority to hear their prayer <coughs> and to answer and. There is this manifestation that he and the Father are one because in all of this, what do we see? We see in the work of mediation, the Father and the Son working together for the same goal, same purpose, same, uh, as we're going to see, same mind and will. <clears throat> it's the will of the Father to give us these blessings in Christ. Yes. So when you pray to Christ, you're praying for the blessings that the Father has given to him to give to Yes. Him. So even though you're praying to Christ, you still have to remember the Father and the Spirit who actually helps us to pray and works with yes. faith in us to uh, attain them. Yes, and we're gonna, we'll come to a lot. We're just kind of getting the text out there right now. There's a lot he's going to cover in this book. All right, the third consideration is Related to the scope and design that Christ has here, which is to cheer up and comfort his disciples. They're sorrowful because they, they hear from him he's going to be leaving. <coughs> and what he's telling them is this. Even though he is going away, they will be able to communicate with him, commune with him via prayer. And that he will, in fact, make known that he has heard through what the Puritans would call a return of prayer, an answer of prayer. This idea is going to come up a lot in the book, the idea of return of prayer. <clears throat> there are other things that are going to come up in the book. Uh, and I want you to keep these things in mind. Uh, let me, I just want to give you a heads up as we go. There, there are these ideas always lurking. First of all, that God hears prayer 
Second, that there are times and seasons where you know he hurt. It's just like you, you can tell when someone is listening to you or not paying attention to you. You have a, a sense about that from time to time. Right? I think everybody's probably felt that now and again. This person or that person is really paying attention or not paying attention. <clears throat> Same kind of thing, you know, when you drive up next to someone and you know the guy next to you is looking at you. Before you even look, you already know he's looking at you. And you look over and sure enough, they're looking. So, there is that. Right, that you can have that sense. And then, when you've heard... Sometimes you hear, and you get a you you will have a sense that it's a no. And sometimes you will have a sense that it is a yes, and you just don't know when. Sometimes you have a sense of sooner rather than later. There are a lot of possibilities here. And what Brown is going to be counseling you to do if you remember that Jesus is really saying uh, prayer is the way to see the miraculous. <clears throat> right? This is a, the ordinary way now appointed to see the miraculous is to pray. To bring heaven down to earth, right? To bring heaven to earth and to raise earth to heaven. Right? When you pray, you need to pray in faith. You need to pray expectantly. And you need to pray with an ear to being heard. Right? To, you're, you're, you're going to be uh, meditating in, in a sense. And you're not going to stop praying about something until you're sure God is heard. That's kind of where it's not, and it's not to say that God God doesn't hear, but God, because God hears everything. But the, the point is that you need to have that confirmation, and that doesn't always happen the first time you pray. In fact, a lot of times it, it's not the first time. And, and that's kind of where pleading the covenant promises come in come into play <clears throat> because you're saying you know this is what you promised. Now you have when I ask you have to give, and, that, yeah. and that's kind of the the hope that you well, rest on. Well, when right? so. Right, when, when there are promises made, we can plead those promises and we can, we should believe them, but we may not instantly have a sense that, you know, we're, we've been heard with respect to that. <coughs> All right, let's look at the, uh, he says these words in, in this passage in John 14 lie under a threefold relation. So, uh, number five, what's observed concerning the first relation? He says, we can observe that all the great works and miracles which the apostles and others with them and after them in the, in the primitive church did to confirm the doctrine of Christ as truly divine and as owned of God <clears throat> were not done, and this is important, they're not being done by them principally 
by themselves, but principally by Jesus and his power and spirit. <coughs> and to prove that, after the resurrection and the ascension, he quotes Acts 3.12. You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? Now he's talking about John, or excuse me, yeah, Peter, Peter and John, <coughs> and the crippled, crippled man at the gate, beautiful. They're not claiming that they did it. They're not claiming the power or anything like that. That's important. And the reason, I want you to, to think about this before we move on to the next points. The reason this is important is this. You need to understand what Jesus is saying is it's the same power when he's on earth working miracles, when the apostles are working miracles, and when you are praying and asking God to do something, intervene, uh, change this or that. It's the same power. <clears throat> right? What's been taken out of the way <clears throat> with revelation, with the, the finality of Scripture is the, the need for the, um, the prophet or the apostle at this time. You know, it used to be if you wanted to, to know or you wanted to be healed, or you wanted this, or you wanted that, you had to go, and you see this in the Old Testament, they had to go to the prophet. Why do you think people are looking for Elijah and Elisha all the time? And in the New Testament, why are they always going after Jesus? Why are they looking for him? Well, with his ascension, his spirit now is poured out, and that same power which was localized with Christ and the apostles is now <clears throat> universalized and is being held forth as that power behind uh, behind the curtain. And when we're praying, we're praying in, in a sense looking at a wall. We don't really see what's beyond that wall. But Jesus is saying what's behind that wall is the same power that I've already showed you over here and here. Right? So when you pray, the reason you can pray expectantly is... It's the same power. The Roman church is all convoluted, aren't they? They don't think they have that power unless they've got some bones from Peter or Paul or, or what have you, relics. They like all that kind of stuff. Um, they, they feel like they need an apostle. Because they don't but, trust in the power of the Spirit. They, 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 don't, they, they, they trust in the power of the person, right? They, the their trust is in the, the human instrument mm. when the principle is really Christ. And that's the point of this verse and this passage, is that Christ himself is the one who's doing this. And that's why, precisely why, Peter and John, when they, uh, when they pray for this man and he's healed, they immediately do what? They disavow that it was them. I can tell you, <clears throat> not only would the Pope not do that, 
um, and has never done that, or you know, these others. But these charlatan, charismatic preachers and so on, when that happens, they want to take all the credit in the world. And if you were working in the demonic world and wanted to deceive people, you've, you've got a double bonus whammy going on here, right? Because you're building up this false teacher who's doing all these crazy things, and you're leading multitudes of people astray. Brown of Wamfrey is saying, look, the power is not being tied to persons. It might have appeared that way for a time. There's a sense in which it, it, it does seem that that was the case. But he's saying now what Jesus is actually doing here is untethering that power for the first time in the history of the church. And the way to tap into that is praying. <clears throat> That's the only way to tap into it, correct? Yeah. Alright, what's the first thing? Number six. What's the first thing they should teach us? <clears throat> first thing is... Uh, it teaches us how we should look at the miracles wrought by the apostles. They're demonstrations of the divine power and authority of Christ. The second thing that we should learn, B is in reference to these works and miracles or in reference to other more ordinary works done since that dispensation miracles has ceased we would learn to see the principle more than the instrument this is a problem and this is one reason I think um, in, in the course of Christianity we have a move, a shift from emphasis on prophets and apostles to prayer. Prophet and an apostle, you can think of it this way, prophet and apostle is sort of like instant prayer, return of prayer. Mm. You know, if I could put return of prayer in a box, I would label it prophet and apostle. I can go right there, boom. What's the problem with that? I might begin to think, and a lot of people do, I might begin to esteem the instrument more than the principle, which is Christ. Quick question. Yeah. You think that's why they had, there, there's multiple ways of, of uh, like David in the Old Testament prayed to the, to, he went to the oracle, but he also consulted the prophets and stuff like that. You think that was why there were so many, a couple different ways to have your prayers answered, so that way you're not just focused on one specific way? Yeah. Yeah. There's... Remember, Calvin, Calvin, I think, has one of the best quotes on this point, and that is that man's mind is an idle factory. <clears throat> if, if you can figure out a way to turn something into an idol, you will. And this is designed to strip away all of that at that level. All right, what's the way in which men dote upon instruments? Uh, this will be C, the third pointer C. <clears throat> Thank you. 
the first way is by um, by overpraising and commending them. And Brown says, look, it's it's true. We are to honor those the Lord is pleased to honor. But let's keep this within reason. Right? Don't don't go crazy. Don't overpraise. Don't overcommend. Don't you know, you can honor people without flattering them. You can, you can honor people without tempting them. Because that's what you're really doing. I was saying, because then they, 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 their pride might think, oh, well, <clears throat> all the people are you know, praising me. Maybe there's something good in there. <clears throat> right. And, and, you know, if there's lesson number one uh, when you're reading something like Romans is there's nothing good, right? There's nothing good in me. Right, what's the second way in which men dote upon instruments? And this is uh, what D. The second way is trusting too much in them and so deifying them, expecting too much from them as if they, they only were to do all. <clears throat> and again, this is a problem. You know, people, people tend to want someone else to do all of the heavy lifting in the realm of religion for them. What they fail to understand is Christ has already done that. And the point of prayer is you have an immediacy of access to that. You don't, it's not to say you shouldn't honor uh, people, again, within reason. But don't flatter them. Don't try to puff them up. Don't try to, you know, get them uh, into some exalted uh you know, rarefied air space. It's not good for you. It's not good for the other person. It's a danger. Remember what Solomon says, you know, when you, when you flatter someone, you're spreading a net for their feet. That's true. And, and conversely, remember this, when somebody's flattering you, they're probably doing the same thing. <clears throat> All right. What's the first way in which we bring Christ more near to our view then? Now, this would be E. <clears throat> this is first when we keep the throne for Christ and give him the glory of all that is done that is due to him. Then whatever we see being done by instruments will be so far from taking our eyes off of Christ that it will lead us up more directly to him and bring Christ nearer to our view. And so when we see <clears throat> something or we see some person in whom uh, it is worth honoring, he says, look, we should do it in this way. Uh, we should say, this is a hand of the Lord. This is a work of the Lord. Uh, second or F, 
He says, we'll be taught thereby to fix our faith and dependence more on him. Because he says, you know, if, if you really do say this is what the Lord has done, why wouldn't you rest upon him? Why would you need to go elsewhere? All right, third, or, or G, uh, we'd be stirred up to express a sen our sense and thankfulness on account of these great works of his. Rather than being uh, mesmerized, we're going to be thankful to Christ for what is being done. And then H, or fourth, if at any time we're disappointed in our expectations, we should be in an adoring frame, uh, speak, stooping before the Lord, remaining silent, and observing His hand in all of this, knowing that He's going to do what He believes is good. Right? What He knows, I should say, is good. Now, I, I say all of these points, <clears throat> if we take this as an aggregate, what, what Brown says here, the fact is you cannot in any reasonable, uh, reasonable um, application of what he's saying, you cannot see any of this within the modern Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. In fact, what you see is exactly the opposite of so many of these things. You know, if you wonder why Reformed theology has been so critical of the Charismatic movement, it's true at times it's because there's a dead rationalism to be found in some of it. But in its best aspirations and its highest perceptions, Reformed theology reflects exactly what Brown is talking about here. The concern for the glory of God. And this really, remember, our, our whole catechism begins with that very simple question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? That's lesson number one. Every time you hear people say it's not fair, this isn't fair, how could God do fill in the blank? Why would bad things happen to fill in the blank? Every time you hear that, that person speaking needs to hear more than anything else. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God does not exist in order to bring pleasure or to bring happiness or contentment or anything else to mankind. Remember, He 
occupies a most voluntary relation to the creation. He didn't have to create. He did it because he wanted to. He doesn't have to do anything. He does it because he wants to. And that's what makes it all the more wondrous then that he is wanting to be merciful to some men. Especially when you consider what a mess mankind has shown itself to be. So, charismatic theology tends to exalt everything that the Bible, as reflected in Reformed theology, is trying to suppress in man. Pride, a sense of entitlement, a sense of worthiness before God. A sense of divine, that God somehow owes us something. Right? He created us after all he owes us. It's a wrong way of thinking, all the way around. And it's not only found in charismatic, I think the reason charismatic churches are so popular and you get these mega churches is because it's simply a reflection of how most people think. And the way most people think is the way fallen men think, because most people remain in a fallen state. And that's a problem. <clears throat> so charismatic theology is not challenging men in their natural state. It's not doing anything to challenge that. It's confirming that. And that's why usually wherever you find large charismatic churches, you find a nest full of mess after mess, nothing's ever being cleaned up. Uh, usually things are being made worse. Anyhow, let's move on to seven. What is the third thing they should teach us? <clears throat> Since the third thing is, is with regard to our own work of righteousness and obedience, we would hence learn to do, do them in him or to have him working them in us. And he begins to give a bunch of verses here. Um, Philippians 2.13, it's God that worketh in us both to will and to do. A um, number of things showing that the apostles understood that when we are obedient, when we are glorifying God, it's actually God working in us and through us. <coughs> Right, eight. What is to be observed next, and what three noble ends are given? So, <coughs> we need to observe next that Christ would have the apostles making use of prayer in order to their working instrumentally of miracles. So, in order for the apostles. To work their miracles, Jesus is telling them, pray. That's an important insight. A lot of people tend to think that 
these apostles are just sort of, um, I, I guess, uh, little uh, centers of divine activity that Jesus winds them up and they just go on forever. But it, it's more like, the, the picture is more like a rechargeable battery. You know, and every time they pray, they're getting recharged. <clears throat> the reason that that's an important image, I think, is, is this. Understand, ultimately, Christ is saying, you have to do, or Brown is saying uh, in the book here, you have to do with the same principle, Jesus, as did the Apostles. Now, you may not have the same function in the history of redemption. But you have access to the same principle and power. To affect your generation. To affect your generation to do what you're called to do. You know, you're not called to be an apostle. We know that because if you were called to be an apostle, capital A apostle, I mean, you know, like Peter and Paul and and the others in the first century. If you were called to be an apostle, you'd have been born then. Isn't that what, what, what lies behind so much of Protestantism, where, you know, like, your vocation, just yes. you know, the grace to do the best you can in your own vocation. You don't have yes. to aspire to be a prime minister or a priest or something like that. <coughs> <coughs> no, and that's actually... <coughs> Protestantism gives value to... More, you know, the more mundane working of mankind. You know, in, under medieval Romanism, the only valuable thing you could do would be a priest, become a priest in the church. Protestantism said, no, that's not true. Everyone has a calling, right? which is why you're to do all that you do to the glory of God, whatever it is, right? whether you're plowing or preaching. Anything in between? So the three noble ends uh, for Christ telling them to make use of prayer. First, <clears throat> to keep them humble in the sense of their own inability. This is B on your paper here, but... Uh, they, he wants to keep them humble in the sense of their own inability and insufficiency. Right? If, if you are given some great power of God, <clears throat> like the apostles seemingly had, and you could go out and sort of wave your hands and you know heal people here and people there and all these other things that they're doing... It's going to be a temptation for you. You know, people, the more gifted, the more talented, the more ability, the harder it is for people to remain humble. 
And frankly, when you look around and you, you live in an age such as ours, where standards have become so low, <clears throat> people have become so careless, people, the standards, the, the standards are so much uh, lower than they were a hundred years ago in terms of craftsmanship and trade and, and all kinds of things that we do in our society. It's very easy to think I excel because of me. You know, I'm inherently better um, to whatever extent you excel. Jesus is saying to these apostles, look, I'm not going to be here to slap you around and tell you, don't think like that anymore. Pray. If you pray, you don't need someone to slap you upside the head and say, stop that. Praying reduces pride because it makes you sensible of the fact that you are dependent. <clears throat> right, second or, or C. To teach them pure and single dependence on him who is to work all these works in them and by them. So not only does prayer teach them that they are not all-sufficient, but that their dependence is specifically upon Christ. So it's a focusing, it's a recognition of your dependence, but it's a focusing of that dependence upon Him as the principle. Which is where we get into uh, the aspect of why it is part of worship. Right? We are worshiping God. We are showing worship is worth-ship. We're showing the worship of God, of Christ. He is worthy. A third or D, <clears throat> to teach them to ascribe all the glory to him to whom alone it was due. Right, so they, they're doing these things. What might they be tempted to do? Remember in Acts 12, Herod is sitting there and people are... Uh, he speaks, and he has, he's a great orator. And he begins to, uh, they, they're saying, uh, the voice of a god and not of a man. And the next thing you know, Herod, because he, he says, oh, that sounds good to me. And, you know, the next thing you know, he's basically become a rotting corpse. Now, is that an example of something miraculous? <clears throat> yes. Does the church view that as miraculous? Yeah, but that was not something done by the apostles. Well, there's still... The miraculous is still here if, if you look. You know, the funny thing is, if something like that happened today, we would have probably two dozen experts trying to tell us what kind of weird disease he had gotten and, and how this had all transpired. At that time, people looked at it and they would say, you know what, even if it was a weird disease, the connection between the people saying, voice of God, not of a man, and then all of a sudden he's a rotting corpse, they saw cause and effect there, where we tend to try to dismiss it. Contrary to atheists today, where they, they had a better light of nature than, or understanding than even atheists yes. do today. 
<clears throat> they were heathens back well, then. Well, because they weren't trying to suppress it like we are today. With mm. the move from... We, we've they passed were through, We've passed through Christianity. Right. We are in a culture now actively trying to reject Christianity. And how are they going to do it? Well, you have to deconstruct it. So you have to tell people to stop connecting dots that they would have normally connected. Mm-hmm. You know, when, the, when that truck goes out of course on the road and your car spins between it and you're not, nobody's hurt, there was a time when people flat out would have just said that's a miracle and they would have meant it. When people say it's a miracle now, what they mean is lucky. you were lucky. Mm. Right? They, they don't see it as a superintending providential hand of God. Their God is just some crazy randomness. It's randomness, right? And, 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 they, and if you had gotten whacked by the truck, you were unlucky. Whereas the Puritans would write, they wrote books about the, the horrible deaths people died for violating the Sabbath. Kids go out and ice skate on the Lord's Day and they fall through the ice and drown and they're like, there you go. They saw it as, as, a, as an example. They would draw those lines that we don't want to draw now. Because after all, you know, sometimes when we start drawing those lines, it seems too judgmental. And we can't do that. Now, it, it's very complex. And they didn't live in a simplistic world. But, you know, when you have a guy who's sitting there and everyone's chanting the voice of God, not of man, the voice of God, not of man... And the next thing you know, he's, you know, rotting on his bed. And it, they, this, in history, we know it, it took place over the course of, of a few weeks. Right? It's, it, it's not instantaneous from the historical account. But it's presented that way in Acts, not because they're not concerned with the history. They're concerned with what Augustine would call the God point of view of history. Mm. Okay, they don't look at, every, at at events as being random or as being unconnected. They look at them as things that are happening for a reason, and that's exactly why Brown is saying pray. You know, there are a lot of people who say, well, you believe in predestination, right? Why would you pray then? If everything is predestined, why would you pray? Because, because there's, there's means predestination, predestination doesn't simply uh, encompass the ends, but the means, right? So if, if God is going to have mercy upon somebody, he's going to move somebody to pray for that person. God is going to do this. He's going to, and we, we see this in the Bible, before he goes to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he say? I'm not going to do anything until I check with Abraham. Does he have to do that? No. That's covenantal. That's a different he's question. Abraham's a friend of but that's, God. But he's my friend. And if we're friends of God, then we have the same right exactly. to that information that he did. Right. As far as d- divine re- divine revelation. Yes. The secret things we don't always know, but well, thy the, kingdom He comes, reveals his covenant to those who love him. Yeah, the secret things of the Lord are revealed. They, they are gradually revealed. And that's one of the things prayer does, is gradually reveals what's going on providentially. So when you see answers to prayer, you, you can begin for yourself to trace out the hand of providence. The, the confirmations that you can have. 
And if it were testimony time, I could tell you some, you know, give you some pretty good examples even within the last week. Um, but it, it's not, you know, it's not the point of going through this book, uh, at least not now. But it's it's probably worth thinking about. But you should, you really, I would recommend um, everybody get a a notebook, a journal. And start recording things you're praying for, things requests that you have, and and then check them off. You will be surprised if you do that, how much more mindful you'll be to pray about certain things, as well as how often things move. From one column to the other, without you even realizing it, unless you're yeah. A lot of times you don't. You're you're not, you know, thinking directly at it, but you you will see that. So, um, uh, does prayer change God? No. Prayer changes us. Yes. Does prayer change the outcome? Yes. Because, because God means. has ordained that it would. Right? He's ordained that if you pray for certain things, he's promised. You know, ask me this and ask me that, and, and I'll do it. If you're not asking, of course you're not going to be receiving anything. Right? All right. <clears throat> Number nine. He wants to take notice of a couple of things now. Uh, the first thing he wants to take notice of is that we would see and observe what a sweet subordination and harmony there is between God's promises and purposes to work his great works and our prayers in reference thereunto. And this is exactly why I say it's a good idea to get a journal. Keep a journal, prayer journal. You'll be more apt to remember When I say that, I'm not always the best at, at doing this, but I do have a book that I keep. And I write in it. And I review it from time to time. And it's something that you should uh, consider if you really want to understand where, where he is uh, trying to help you see the value in praying. All right, what's the second use? Number 10. And then he has seven things marked out under the second use. So, the second use is that we might here mark the wonderful goodness and condescension of God. That he'll have us pray for that which he minds to give and work himself. Now think about that. God does not owe us anything, and yet God says, if you ask me, I'm going to treat it as if I do owe it to you, because I told you I would do X, Y, or Z, if you ask. That's the covenant element. That's the covenant element. So your praying is testing the covenant element. There's seven things that are marked out, 
then um, he minds to give these seven things. First, B, uh, he renews and confirms the proof of his faithfulness. That's important, isn't it? That he's, uh, he's showing us that he's faithful. How, how are you going to know that God, whether or not God is faithful? Even if you believe he's real, you, you know he's going to be faithful. How do you know that if you're not in some way noting it? Testing him in a way. Well, I, but I'm saying making, keeping some sort of note. All right, uh, second or C, he makes the mercy a double mercy by giving of it freely and by giving of it in such a way as it were on our prayers and desires, right? So he's giving it to us in response to our prayers. People who go through life just receiving the goodness of God without praying they, what they're doing is essentially uh, walking through, uh, you know, one of these mega grocery stores where they're handing out samples, and he's he's you're you're collecting all the free samples along the way, right? But it's a very different thing when you actually want something and ask for it and get it. Right? If you were to say, rather than what they're, what's on offer, you said, I really want to try that, and they would open that up and let you try that, that'd be very different. Very different situation. And that's the whole point where Christ purchased. Right. That and and that, that's why it's important that he's telling us to do this. Right? This is a gracious thing. that when, when something like that happens, now you can see there's something special going on. And this is what prayer, prayer, one of the things prayer will do is bring you greater assurance and confirmation. Third or D here, he thus allures and engages poor sinners to have fellowship and correspondence with him by prayer. Again, who could think that they could pray to God, speak to God as a friend, apart from God saying you can do it this way. I mean, let, let's put it this way. If you do it without knowing that God is telling you you can do this, it's presumption. It's coming from a point of pride, which is never a good place uh, from which to approach God. And it's going to lead to a lot of knocks of providence. Right, fourth or, or E, he hereby makes the mercy sweeter and more desirable to us and more welcome when it comes when he has made us pray and wrestle for it in prayer. Right? This is sort of the same principle as you, know, you never appreciate something that's been given to you to the same degree as you appreciate something for which you've worked. Now, the problem is this. We can't work for our salvation. Salvation is by free grace. Prayer, in this sense, I think Brown is pointing out, prayer satisfies that basic human longing mm. to do something and receive something. It's totally, and we know this, it's totally gracious. God is saying to us, ask of me and I'll give it to you. 
It's not that we could actually do something, but asking for it, if we're really wrestling with God for it, it feels like we've done something without really doing something. We, we are sensing that we are struggling with the grace of God, and that longing is channeled in a way that's not interfering, because at the end of it all, as we're going to see, we can't take credit for any of it. If you're really praying, you're not really going to come to the end of that and try to take credit for it when God answers the prayer. That would defeat the whole purpose. If you do, then you need to start asking other questions. You know. uh, fifth, he hereby keeps us in a fresh sense of our unworthiness. What better to keep you notable, noting your unworthiness and continually revisiting the fact that you are utterly dependent. And if God hadn't told you to ask, you would really have no pretext for asking unless you were just proud and self-confident. But our, our basis for asking should not be pride or the idea that God owes me. We ask because God has said you can do this. You know, you should do this. I want you to do this. At right, 6G, he hereby engages us to uh, more to see and acknowledge the true fountain and spring, the wellhead of all the mercies and favors uh, which we receive, which is the free grace and love of God. Again, when you think that God owes you something, then it's a debt. Right? You're going you're gonna to receive everything you get in life thinking this is just what God owed me. And you're probably going to end up in hell because you're going to find out what God really owed you. The fact is, God does not owe the creature anything. Apart from covenant, right? Once he covenants, but yeah, as far as creation goes, there is no necessity. God could have created and walked away from it all. He could have. Because there's no necessity of nature. But there is, in fact, a divine uh, benevolence toward his creation. And that is confirmed to the creation through covenant, which we, is something we're talking about uh, on Fridays. But that's, that's a different... Uh, proposition that's but it's an important thing all right eight or seventh uh, he hereby lays obligations on us to be more thankful for and sensible of his free and undeserved kindness <clears throat> right, what is the, what what three things are observed concerning the second relation? First of all, 
he observes Christ answering all the lawful and necessary desires and petitions of his people is actually a demonstration and confirmation of being one with the Father. Both as to his essence and operation, but especially with respect to the work of redemption. Right? Second, or B, 11B. The Christ hearing and answering all our supplications should assure us of this fundamental truth that he is, in fact, equal with the Father. And three or C, that we cannot rightly direct our prayers to Christ or to God through Christ and expect that he will effectually grant and work the answer unless our faith is fixed on this one truth, and that is that he and the Father are one. And, and by one, what don't we mean? Not one person, but we one. We don't mean one nature. person. Hmm? They're one, one nature, one will. One nature, one will. One mind. All right. All three of these, and he, he goes on to say, lie wrapped up in the connection of the words with what went before, which is him uh, telling the apostles what's going to happen. He's going to be leaving them. So the first thing, the first thing this says to us is this, that in order to approach God rightly in prayer, we need to be rooted in this faith that our Lord Jesus is one with the Father in essence and operation. And that means there's one work of redemption. Now, should we go on here and see how do we know that as to the work of redemption they are one? There are four points, which are B through E. First, or B, uh, we are confirmed hereby in our hope of being heard by Christ when we present our supplications. Right? If he's God, we, need, we, we don't need to ask whether or not he really knows what we need or, or what our desires are. Second, or C, that we would be encouraged to go with confidence to the Father through Him. If He and the Father are one, we don't have to question His expediency and power with the Father. What He wills, the Father wills also. This is an important thing <coughs> to understand, and I've mentioned this before, but it's something worth keeping in mind. There are a lot of people who have this view that the Old Testament is sort of God emeritus, he was the harsh God, the mean God, the, you know, the old, they talk about the Old Testament God. Fire and brimstone God. All of that. Understand, first of all, that fire and brimstone God of the Old Testament was pre-incarnate Jesus, largely. Okay, we could, we could do an entire study on that, but 
largely the, the person in view is the eternal son. And if you got that view from the Old Testament, then of course you must really be wondering what's going on in the New when we're told that God is love and things like that. But the point is, it's the same God. Two distinct persons, but the same God. God, there are not three individuals in the Godhead, but there are three persons. Three distinct, three uh, distinguishable persons. Exhibiting one mind, one will, one purpose, one operation of redemption. So when the Son is active in this way and the Father in that way, we can assume that it's reflective of the essential being of the other person. Because there are not two gods. We don't worship two or three gods. There's only one divinity. Uh, third or D, that we may hereby be certain our prayers put up to the Father through Christ will be accepted. Why? So friends with him. And fourth or E, uh, that we can rest confident that the answer and return of our prayers will be solid, real, safe, and seasonable. Why? Because he is, in fact, God. And he will perform all things with all of the wisdom you would expect of God. Alright, 13, what's the second thing this says to us? Well, it says that every return and answer of our prayer should confirm us in the faith of this, that our Lord Jesus and the Father are one in essence and operation. So again, what are we talking about? Return and answer of our prayer. Return of prayer is that sense that we've been heard. That God heard that one. What should that convince us of about Christ? What, what should we, we should think about Christ when we have that confirmation? Well, he's God together with the Father. We're praying to God and we're praying through Christ. Wait. So they are one in essence in operation and that means that they're one in the work of redemption. Right, 14. It's the third thing this says to us. It tells us the advantages of believers are great who put up their supplications to God through God and have the returns from God through God. Again, the mediator is being God and one with the Father. We pray to God through God. By the help of God. By the help of God.
We have a great advantage then. Because when unbelievers pray, what are they doing? They may be praying to God, but are they praying through God? No. Are they praying by God? No. How are they going to approach God properly? That being the case. Alright, 15. What's the fourth thing this says to us? It says, if you really understand it, it should make you fall in love with and delight in the noble exercise of prayer. It really is a noble exercise. Like When you think about it, we have a great privilege to pray, but we don't even want to. That's yeah. Not. I was like, why wouldn't you want to pray? Right. And that's what he's questions. really trying to enforce. You've been told you'll be answered. Why, yeah, why you wouldn't pray? you want to do that? Yeah. Why don't you want these good things to use to serve? And why, why wouldn't you want to avail yourself of God to pray to God? Yeah. But that's where the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? Yeah. 16. What is observed concerning the third relation? Now, remember, the third relation of the words is that um, they were given comfort to sorrowful disciples. And they're, they're concerned, they're troubled at the thought of him going away, his bodily presence uh, vanishing from among them. And so there are four things, then, that might be observed upon this relation. The first, or A, 17, uh, that Christ's bodily absence need not hinder our prayers. What's he doing? He's encouraging them to pray. When? Shortly before his ascension. If his bodily absence would be a hindrance to prayer, don't you think this would be the time to say something? It appears to be nothing. Why is it nothing? Because his divinity is not limited by his humanity. Alright, 2 or B, 17. Christ being now in glory and exalted as mediator should be a strong encouragement and inducement to this duty of prayer. Uh, because he's not going to suffer our prayers to miscarry. He's going to make sure that there's a return of prayer. So actually, the argument here is, this being said to them shortly prior to his ascension, And in hope of the ascension, should tell us that there is something transpiring in the ascension that will redound to the benefit of believers in the prayer. Uh, C, uh, 3 or 17C, Christ, even while out of sight of his people, can and will procure their good as effectually as if he were present with them. Again, why 
we can look back what we've already said. He's equal with the Father. He's of one substance or essence in nature with the Father. Then 4 or 17d. Christ cared the prayers of his people while he's now absent bodily. Should make them digest well and be satisfied with the fact that he is absent bodily. But the efficacy and answer of prayer is the result of him working in and through our flesh on our behalf. But the one working in and through our flesh is himself the eternal Son of God. <clears throat> so the mediation is through the flesh, but the power that lies behind that is the power of God. Right. 18. Uh, what are the six things that appear in this? The first thing he notes is the happy condition of believers to whom all things work together for good. He says even Christ's bodily absence can't detract from that. It won't detract from that. Second or 18b He says, believers should be far from questioning the love and tenderness and kindness of Christ even when he is withdrawn and hides himself. He says, after all, what we see here is this. The lack of bodily presence does not mean that his affection to his people has dampened. It's not less. Three or eighteen C. While Christ is now in glory at the Father's right hand, as He ascended and exalted Mediator, believers should be diligent posting their desires. After all, uh, they should be saying things like this: Christ is now high at court. He's now positioned better than when he was on earth. Like that mediation, that medium of mediation, our humanity has now been resurrected and enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. That all should seem to bode well for believers who are praying. 18D, number 4. Believers should not be misbelievingly troubled or too much discouraged and cast down at Christ's necessary withdrawings. So when Christ withdraws from time to time, that should not discourage you In fact, if you're a believer. It's driving you to pray harder. You, you can look at this and say, well, he's withdrawing for a good purpose, right? We, we see that here. 
He's not leaving them simply to let them flounder in their sin on earth. He's leaving them in order that he might send his spirit to help them. Four or D. Wait, did I skip one here? C. I'm sorry. Page flipped on me. Uh, we're up five. Uh, five E. <clears throat> Believers should improve all the sweet and satisfying returns of prayer which they attain to this end and advantage, among others, to confirm them in the faith of this. Again, the Lord Jesus is God, equal in power and glory with the Father. That should give you more faith, not less faith, to pray. And then 6 or, or 18F, uh, it should be an encouragement to strangers to acquaint themselves with this Lord Redeemer, who is one with the Father, particularly if they ever desire to have it going well with them here or hereafter and have their wants supplied. Why? You see, there's a, there's a what he's talking about, or what lies behind this, is this idea in the world that we can approach God in any way we desire, any manner we find pleasing. So people say we're spiritual, despite the fact. And, and, you know, it's funny, people, I've heard people say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like his disciples. And, and while there may be some merit to that argument at some level, what they generally uh, mean is they find his disciples distasteful, usually because they're, as they put it, judgmental, strict, um, uh, in, in some of the legalistic, they, they've got all kinds of words they throw around. What they forget is this. Jesus himself is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So if you want to go with the historical Jesus, he's the one who started all this narrow thinking on this point. Right? Buddha is not the way. Muhammad is not the way. Shintoism, Hinduism, they're not other ways to God. Jesus says he alone is the way to God. Why? Well, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Mediator, then all of this stuff begins to make sense. Right? So Jesus' point here is this. You can ask anything in my name of the Father. Why? Because I am God together with him. But I am flesh together with you. Which is why Paul says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one bridge. You know, Paul's not stricter than Jesus. He's simply reflecting what Jesus said. So, you know, fairly speaking, you can reject Christianity, but don't be surprised if Christians don't. You know, that's really the point. People expect Christians to reject Christianity. And there are a lot of 
people who think that they're Christians who go around and they essentially they reject Christianity when they say, well, you know, that's your opinion. Whatever works for you. No, this, you never see Christ or the apostles talking that way. Whatever works for you. And certainly when Paul's preaching to the Roman, uh, the Roman leaders, they don't perceive it that way. Right? Agrippa, what does he say? You know, Paul, uh, almost that persuades me to be a Christian. And Paul says, I wish, not almost, but altogether, that you were a Christian. Except for the chains. That you were like me, except for the chains. Why is he saying that? If, if you know, uh, there's another way. You know, Caesar worship could work. You know, if I believe in the, you know, in the, the, uh, the ethereal gum, gumball that makes everyone feel good, you know, I mean, it, how far can this go? I'm spiritual. I've got spiritual conceptions. Well, of course you do. You're creating the image of God. You have to. Doesn't mean they're all right. So there's one way, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, why wouldn't you want that one way? All right, 19. Ought we to consider these words in John 14 limited? He says that that um, we're when we when we go over this, uh, we have to think about these general terms and and not be restricted alone in, in seeking of, of helps and assistance for working miracles uh, as might serve to confirm their commission and divine truth of their doctrine, which they uh, they were to get a more foreign ample commission to deliver after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Uh, we shouldn't restrict them than to seeking those kind of helps and assistance for working in miracles. Uh, we are to think about, we're really looking uh, beyond all of that at the principle, which is Christ. So finally, then, there are seven particulars to be considered in these words, and he's going to just give us these, and then this will form the what we're going to be talking about going forward. So first, 20, 20A, um, there's a duty of prayer mentioned in the word asking. We have to ask. That's giving us a duty. Uh, second, 20B, the person to whom prayer is to be addressed, which is presupposed and gathered from the foregoing, is the Father or God and Christ himself. But you can also pray to the Spirit, right? Yeah. He, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that. But he's talking in terms of what What's here in our text? And he'll, he'll expand upon this. 20C, number 3, or 20C. The person through whom these prayers will be presented, uh, or the manner of the performance is in these words, in my name. For 20D, there's the matter of this prayer, and that is very large. Uh, and that is whatsoever you shall ask. There's not a really, you know, you may think there's a big restriction here. There's not, now it's, we know from elsewhere, and we'll talk about this later on, uh, it's limited by the will of God. We can't ask God to, 
uh, well, we can, but it's going to be rejected, right? We can't. We shouldn't be praying for things that are unlawful. Or it may be granted, but not to your. Not well, to your sometimes God grants things in judgment, so exactly. be careful. Uh, five or twenty e. There's a return or answer of prayer in these words. I will do it. Twenty uh, f. There's the end of the return. Why is it we want to return a prayer? Why is it God answers prayer? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then finally, 20G or 7. Uh, there's a doubling of this repetition in uh, of this return in verse 13. If she'll ask anything in my name, I will do it. So he, he repeats it. Now why does he repeat it? Because we're stupid. Well, we are stupid. But usually when the Bible repeats things like this, it's to bring an emphasis uh, and it, it's, it's really telling us this is certain. God really will do it. And he tells us a second time so that we don't find ourselves sitting there asking, is this going to happen or not? It's certain, and it will come to pass in that matter. All right. so next time we're going to move on to chapter 2, uh, which has to do with prerequisites to praying, and we'll talk about that.